spies. Oh. The Murad, are you guys familiar with the story of the yes. spies? Yes. Okay. So, Chassidus has a very interesting take on this story. It's one of those stories that's elaborated at length in the Torah. And um, it's interesting because Gemara says, you know, stories you can find at length, sometimes repeated double in the Torah, but then it comes to like foundational halakhot and mitzvahs and you have to like find a hint of a hint from one word, from one letter to find what we're actually supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Ramban is the one who famously said, uh, that the stories of our forefathers are a sign for their children, that we live according to the stories, we learn how to live and how to serve Hashem. And one of the stories that really is described at length is the story of the spies. And it's really the next, uh, basically the next place we're holding in, also just in terms of the dates. Um, technically already the story of the spies passed. It happened in the end of ER. Um, but it did happen after, it's interesting, it happened after they got the Torah because it was the following year. So basically just a, a little bit of a timeline. The Jewish people got the Torah on the 6th of Sivan, right? We just got the Torah. And then they stayed at the mountain for just under a year. They left, so they got it on the 6th of Sivan, and then the following ER, the 20th of ER, is when the cloud departed, right? And that's how they knew when they were supposed to leave, to follow the cloud. And the cloud left, they had to all pack up, because they knew that they were, they were going to have to journey. And the, the, the goal was that from the 20th, They'll leave, and it's going to take them three days from where they were encamped in the Sinai Desert to get to the border of Israel and to enter Israel. So on Kaf, on Kaf Betiyar, which is actually my birthday, on Kaf Betiyar, the Jewish people were supposed to enter the land of Egypt. But a bunch of things happened in those three days. It was a very, very, very eventful time. The Jewish people really started to mumble and grumble the moment they left. Um, the aura of Har Sinai. The first downfall that happened, it says in Rashi, was that when the Claudipat cloud departed and they knew that they had to leave they were happy you guys know why they were happy what Rashi says why were the Jewish people happy to leave Har Sinai think like the Jewish people then <laughs> what was happening that just under a year from Sivan until the following year which is 11 months what was happening during that time when they were encamped at the bottom of the mountain they were learning Torah they were learning to they were receiving the mitzvahs. Oh, so they were excited to perform all the mitzvahs. They were happy to be finished. To be finished <laughs> no. They knew that's that that's it. That's all the mitzvahs. Basically, when we got the Torah, we got the Aserah Sadibros, which is the tablets, which includes within them, and Kabbalah has all different ways of extracting from the Aserah Sadibros all of the 613 mitzvahs through hints, etc. Right. Sorry if I'm not, I don't think at you because it's like everyone's here now. Um, and so they extracted that from the Aser HaSadibur. So it actually says, the Rebbe explains in the Sikha, very interestingly on Shavuot, the concealed part of Torah was revealed and the revealed part of Torah was concealed. So they got the, they got the Ten Commandments and they saw the deeper spiritual dimension, the godliness, that ex- God himself even, that exists within the Torah. And then they spent 11 months actually learning the practical laws. Um, there was a whole system that was created where Moshe would teach it, um, Moshe, Moshe would teach it, and then he would teach it on and on and on to the Sakanim, etc. And then um, there was a whole system, but the Jewish people were learning, just like somebody who is new to Judaism, doesn't know any of the mitzvahs, is going to sit down and start to learn all the halachas, right? And at some point, it's going to be like, or somebody who's converting, they'll be like, okay, that's it. <laughs> 
I'm not finished doing the mitzvahs, but that's it, right? That, that's all of the mitzvahs. That's what happened with the Jewish people. When they got up, they knew that's it. We're not, we're not getting any more mitzvahs. Hashem, this is what Hashem, this is the whole Torah, this is what Hashem expects of us. And they were happy. Um, and Moshe was the complete opposite. Moshe begged and begged and begged Hashem to go into Eretz Yisrael, right? That's also detailed at length. Happened after the story of the spies. And Moshe was told he can't go into Eretz Yisrael. And one of the reasons given, oh, why did because he hit the rock. Why did he so desperately want to go into Eretz Yisrael that he argued with Hashem endlessly, fruitlessly, because he wanted to do more mitzvahs. That's why. Because in Eretz Yisrael, and we're going to discuss this in this mimer, the significance of Eretz Yisrael, there are many mitzvahs that you can only perform in Eretz Yisrael. And Moshe wanted to do more mitzvahs. So we see that the Jewish people were not holding on that level, that they just wanted to do more and more and more mitzvahs, and were just, no, let's stay at the mountain, give us more, give us more ways to connect to Hashem. They, they were happy, they were relieved. They were normal people, right? So they got up, and the plan was, as I said, that within three days, it was an 11-day journey from where they were in the Sinai Desert to the border of Eretz Yisrael to get in. But Hashem was hurrying them. They were going very, very quickly. Hashem was giving them The first thing that happened um, was that they started to complain that they were going too quickly. <laughs> we're going too fast. Calm down. Slow down. So then a fire broke out. And it's all detailed in Parsha. I don't remember which Parsha. Sorry. <laughs> um, a fire broke out. And then Hashem had to, Moshe had to dump to Hashem, and the fire went back into the earth. And then they started to complain about um, the slav, the mon. They started to complain that the mon was tasteless. They were like about to get a dead straw. No, the mon is tasteless. We need real food. We haven't tasted real food. They wanted meat. And then there was the famous story of the slav that Hashem said, you want meat? Here's meat. And he gave them meat to the point that they were sick and many of them died. And then there was a story of Mara also, of the bitter water. No, Mara was before, sorry, so sorry. Then there was a story of Miriam with the Tsaras. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when, does, uh, this, does like the story of Yeshua happen after this or no? Like, it, after he go, like, because I know that Moshe can't go into, but like, does Moshe die and then um, Yeshua takes him to Israel or like, um, he's still alive, but can't go to Israel? So Moshe basically publicly gives over his rule so to speak to Yahushua saying when I die Yahushua is the one taking over in his lifetime um, but the, sto- the Torah basically ends with Moshe's death okay. and is picked up in the Nevi'im in the first one which is the Sefer Yahushua the story of how Yahushua took the Jewish people into Egypt yeah into Eretz Yisrael Egypt sorry um, but basically a whole series of events happens mm-hmm. and they get to the border of Eretz Yisrael they're about to enter about to enter and suddenly the Jewish people start to get a little nervous. Like, okay, new land, new place. And they all gather together. And they st- there was usually, again, um, a system. Moshe was a great delegator. And, well, Yisra was the one who told him, you're working too hard, right? So he set up a whole delegation system. Somebody had a question, they went to somebody. If that person couldn't ask, they went to the next person, to the next person. And only the most difficult questions came to Moshe. He didn't just go and bother Moshe. But it's detailed in the Torah that what happened, man, woman, and child all stampeded to Moshe's house. <laughs> you can imagine this, right? They were all in a frenzy. They're about to enter his storm. They start freaking out. They start knocking on his door and pounding on his door and Moshe opens it and like the whole Jewish people standing there wild-eyed and they say, we need spies. We can't just go in. We're not ready. We need somebody to go check out the land first, plan out a war strategy to tell us what to expect. We don't know what's happening. We need spies. Okay, so what does Moshe do? Spies. What does Moshe always do before he makes any decisions? Oh. He goes to Hashem. And something very unique happens. Usually when Hashem asks, when Moshe asks Hashem, Hashem answers and tells him exactly what to do. Um, Moshe was pretty much a yes man. He was like, okay, yeah, good, let's do it. You know, God told us to do it. But this time, what did God tell him? Do as you think. 
do as you think. Whatever you think. I'm not judging you. I'm not telling you my opinion. It's up to you. And Moshe elected 12 of the most righteous of all of the Jewish people. And he said, of the most righteous men. And, ooh, the Kliaka, I think it is. I'm pretty sure it's the Kliaka. says, why did he choose men and not women? Because women have a natural love for the land of Israel, he said. And if the women had gone, they would have just fallen in love with the land. Um, it's very interesting. I'm pretty sure it's the Kliakar says that. It's something very interesting. Because I see so often couples come here like, what do you ask the guy? What are you doing here? My wife took me here. Like, my wife slept us here, right? Women have this love of Eretz Israel. Good morning. Um, so he sent 12 men, the most righteous of the generation. And they went, and we know the story. They um, got pretty freaked out. They brought back ginormous fruit. It says it took 10 people to carry one cluster of grapes. And then another guy schlepped a fig. Um, wait, there were only 12 of them. One fig? So what happened? So maybe it was eight Jewish, because I know one took a fig, one took a date. Kalev and Yoshua didn't take anything. And then, so I guess it was, I remember it being ten, but I guess it was eight. I guess it was eight people stepping a cluster of grapes. Um, and they brought these huge, monstrous fruit, not to demonstrate how fruitful and bountiful the land of Israel is, but to demonstrate how freakish it is. And that if the fruit is this big, imagine how big the people are. And then they went on to describe how the cities weren't even walled. Like, there weren't even walls, which you would think, okay, like, we could get in easily. No, no, no. They twisted everything. The cities aren't walled, which means that they're so secure in their ability to protect themselves that they don't even have walls up. Um, and they came back, Kolob and Yoshua, the whole way back, pretended that they were on the side of the spies because they knew otherwise they would be killed by the spies. So they, you know, they were they were on board, but then the moment they came back, the spies came up, they gave their whole drosha, they gathered the Jewish people. They were not, like, Caleb and Yeshua were not spies? They were, they were part of the 12 spies, but 10 of, 10 of the spies went to describe the freakishness and the scariness and the impossibility of conquering the land. Caleb and Yeshua stayed silent, and their plan was to actually convince the Jewish people that no, we should go into the land, but they stayed silent. And, and then it's explained that Kolev, when he got up to speak after the Jewish people were ready in a frenzy, he started by saying, yes, and you know what else Ben Amram did? Like referring to Moshe as Ben Amram, like you know how people like refer to their friends as like their last name, you know how guys do that? Like, yo, cats, you know? Um, it's like, oh, this Ben Amram. It's like, so everyone started to listen. Okay, what else, what other trash are they gonna like you know, heap on Moshe. So everyone started to listen. Then he said, he took us out of Egypt and he gave us the man and he's going to get us into the land of Israel. And the Jewish people wanted to kill him. And then Shekhinah came down. This is a really, really crazy story that's detailed and detail in the Torah. And what ended up happening, the spies died very publicly, very, um, you know, the 10 spies. And um, many of the Jews started to die as well. Hashem wanted to wipe out the Jewish people at this point. It was completely done, as you can rightfully understand. And then Moshe said, no, 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 no. If you do that, then the Egyptians are going to think that you, you're too scared. You're on the board of Israel, that you're, you're too scared of the Canaanites. Don't do that. So what did Hashem say? Okay, this generation's not going to go in Israel. We're going to spend another 40 years. And then their children, who they were so worried about, they kept on crying out. You see in the Torah, what about the children? We took our children out of Egypt just to die in the desert, just to die in the war of Canaan. It's like their children who they're so worried about are going to enter the land. And that's what happened. Every single year on Tisha B'Av, which is the day that the spies came back, the, the 
people of that generation would dig themselves a grave, would lie in the grave, and every year many of them would not wake up. Until 40 years later, on Tubov, that's one of the reasons why we celebrate Tubov, they went, they lay in the grave, and nobody died. Because they were a new generation and they weren't ready to go into the land. they dig their grave? They would dig their own grave. Why? Oh, why? Because they knew they, weren't, they were very possibly not going to wake up that night because pe- the generation was wiped out every year on, on Tisha B'Av. People wouldn't, wouldn't wake up. So I guess they didn't want to make people Tomei, I guess, and <laughs> cause a fuss. So they dug their own graves. That's what's um, described. So this is really, this is the story in, in short um, of, of the spies. And there are many, many questions that are asked in general and that Hasidus asks on the story. And one of the most disturbing ones is how could the leaders of the generation, the most righteous, it says that he chose Anashim, that Moshe chose men. And we know that when, you, when we call people men, it's, it's, the, it's the most human of the nation, the most righteous. How, how could they have strayed so far to the point that they, after seeing all of the miracles, that they actually didn't believe in God. And we know that this is a bit of a trend, right? Since the Jewish people left, they saw miracle after miracle and they kept on doubting God. But to such an extent that at this point they had survived in the desert already. They had had the man. They had left Egypt. They were on. They had gotten the Torah. They had experienced God himself. They had been punished for the Egel Azav. Like they'd been through everything. How, how, how could this happen? And Hasidus explains to us a whole different perspective that the spies were giving over to the Jewish people. That was a wrong perspective but it wasn't an evil one like it looks. It was just wrong, it was just incorrect. And so this mimer is gonna be discussing really that question. What was it that the Jewish people were so afraid about? Why were they suddenly freaking out, right? God had taken them out of Egypt, which was the empire of the time. Why were they scared of the Canaanim, right? They, had seen, they, had, they were living miracles at the time. Why couldn't God just give them another miracle? We're also gonna be discussing a little bit about Eretz Yisrael. What about Eretz Yisrael were they so afraid of? And what does Eretz Yisrael spiritually represent? And why is it, um, it opens up with the question, why is it that Eretz Yisrael is called a land flowing with milk and honey? Right? Have you heard that term? That's how it's described in the Torah. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And here, the Altar Rebbe says, it's not such a great compliment. Like, yay, we have milk and honey. Like, are there not other better ways to describe the land of Israel, to display its strength and its might and its beauty and its spirituality and its connection with God? Why milk and honey? So we're going to learn what the spiritual significance of the fact that it's called the land of milk and honey is, as well as why it is that specifically in the land of Israel, we have so many mitzvahs that are additional, right? There are so many mitzvahs that we only keep here. Um, you guys were here at the beginning of the Shemitah year, right? It's something that's only relevant in the land of Israel. Trumas and Maishas even today is relevant here. It's not relevant out of Israel. Even taking challah is do a right to here, to do a banan out of Israel. There are many, many mitzvahs that are only performed in the land of Israel. And so that's something we need to understand as well. But the overarching theme and question that we're going to be addressing is what was the complaint of the spies? What, they were, what were they actually so afraid of? Okay. And so hopefully we'll be finished this, uh, I'm sure we will, we'll be finished this um, Mimer before Parshas Shalach, before it's the following week, right? Not this week, but the following week, so that you can go into Shalach with a little bit of a Hasidic perspective. And the Mimer here is titled Mitzvahs in Action because we're really going to be trying to discuss the significance of what actually happens when we do a mitzvah and why is it that mitzvahs are so physical. Okay, so that's another thing that we're going to be going to be discussing. So does anyone have any questions or comments on what I've said so far?
You're good. You got a bit of a, a bit of the story. Um, you can go go read it up. It's it's got a lot more details even in the Torah itself, which is unusual. It goes really into detail. And okay, so let's start. I'm gonna start by reading just the introduction here on page three. Does everyone have the place? It's the next mimer in the book. Are we recording? Yes. Hi, recording. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In Pasha's Hashem gives Moshe permission to send spies in order to investigate Eretz Yisrael before the Jewish people enter. These spies were none other than the leaders of the tribes who were great spiritual men. The purpose of their mission was to figure out the most strategic way to enter the land in order to conquer it and to report to the Jewish people about the greatness of Eretz Yisrael so that they will be more excited to enter. What actually happened was that they saw that the people living in the land were very strong and instead came back with a report that they felt that the land could not be conquered and that the Jewish people should remain in the desert. On a simple level, it is very difficult to understand how they would come to fail their mission so utterly, considering their own spiritual greatness. Hasidus explains that it's precisely because of their spiritual level that they wish to remain in the desert, occupied by spiritual pursuits, rather than entering the physical land with its physical distractions, as we're going to see. Okay, so let's start inside with the Pasuk. This mimer is called Shlach Lacha, right, named after the first verse in Parshas Shlach. And the Pasuk goes like this, Shlach Lacha Anashim, send for yourself spies, the Yasuru at Eretz Canaan, they will investigate the land of Canaan, Asher Ani Noten Livnei Yisrael, which I'm giving to the land of the Jewish, which I'm giving to the Jewish people, Ishechad, Ishechad, Lamate Avotav, each tribe will send one man, one representative, right? It says Ish, that he should be a man, a righteous person, Avotav, Tishlechu Kol Nasi Bahem, send the leader of his tribe, right? And the fact that it says, Shlach Lacha, send for yourselves, Hashem says, I am not giving my opinion here, whether or not you need to send them, it's up to you. And they decided that they wanted the spies. We see a similar story with um, the story of Shmuel, that in the time of the prophet Samuel, while the Jewish people were living in Israel, they decided, the Jewish people decided, they started you know, knocking on his door as well, just as they did by Moshe, and they said, we need a king. Everyone else has a king. We don't have a king. We need a king, right? Are you familiar with this story? And so Shmuel went to Hashem and said, what, what should we do? He says... And Hashem, told, Hashem then did say, okay, go appoint a king. But it was based on the request of the people as well. It's like, okay, the people want a king, they can have a king. And we know that it didn't, the kings didn't do, it didn't go so well for the Jewish people. Um, so we see this here as well. Shlach lecha, send for yourselves. So we're going to ask three questions, okay, about the spies and about Israel. And then we're going to go into the idea of what is mitzvah, so we can really understand that. And then we're going to answer the questions. So question number one. In Yenhamaraglim, we have a question about the spies themselves. Shahayu Ha'eda, they were the leaders of the generation, of the, of the congregation. <coughs> they are called Anshe Shem, men of a name, men of renown, men who were famous and known. So Umatam, so what's the reason? that they did not want to enter the land of Israel. The famous question on Pasha Shlach. Number two. The Gamlavin, we also need to understand, Mahus Madregas Eretz Yisrael, this level of Eretz Yisrael. What does Eretz Yisrael represent spiritually? Hiniksev, it's written about Eretz Yisrael in the Parsha of Chukas, Ha'aretz Asher Nasati Lahem, the land which I have given to you, Eretz Zavas Chalav Udvash, a land flowing with milk and honey. And the altar up here is very blunt on page five. He says, Umashevechuzeh. What kind of praise is this? 
of all of the praises we can give to Eretz Yisrael, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. Like, why is that so, why is that so exciting? Why is that so unique? Okay, we got question number two. Give you a minute to write. Question number three. We also need to understand, based on trying to understand why Eretz Yisrael is called a lad flowing with milk and honey, another question. We have many, many, many practical action mitzvahs that are dependent on using the physicality around us. And we know that Ruban Kakulam, a majority of these practical mitzvahs, Tluim Dafka Be'eretz Yisrael, are dependent specifically on the land of Israel, on you being present in the land of Israel to be able to perform these mitzvahs. Especially anything relating to agriculture, right? All of the agricultural commandments that we have fall specifically in the land of Israel. That's very, very physical, right? And also the Kadashim and all of the things that are related to the Beit HaMikdash, all the purity laws and the sacrifices, which were very, very physical, um, that they specifically depend on us having a Beit HaMikdash in the land of Eretz Yisrael. So why is it that most of our practical mitzvahs are dependent on being us being found in the land of Israel? What's the connection between practical mitzvahs and the land of Israel? Okay. So number three, practical mitzvahs in the land of Israel. Yes. Why are majority of the practical mitzvahs found in the land of Israel specifically? And then there's a parenthesis that says, Uba midbar hayua So you can say, oh, but they also had korbanot in the midbar. It's not only, um, it wasn't only in the land of Israel, but however, this was something that was temporary, right? The Jewish people did bring korbanot in the, in the midbar, but it was a temporary situation. And once we actually had the land of Israel, a new law came into place, which was that you can only bring korbanot in the Beit HaMikdash, in the land of Israel. Okay? But they didn't have a Beit Say again? Well, first they had a Mishkan. Right. So Mishkan and Beit HaMikdash are used con conjunct... What's the word? Con conjunctually? No. Is that a thing? Interchangeably. Interchangeably. There we go. In conjunction... Could you split? Can you, can you repeat the question number three? Sure. Um, the question is, why are majority of the practical mitzvahs dependent on the land of Israel? So all of the agricultural commandments that we have, um, lek, le, you guys familiar with like shechecha, leket, peya, that you have to leave the corners of your field yeah. and all of those interesting ones and trumas and maestros that you have to take the, and the bikurin, that you have to take the choicest and the first of your fruits and your crops to the land, to Beit HaMikdash and the fact that you have to give a tenth and all of the, all of the fines and not the fines, the taxes that they had on agriculture, um, Shemitah, etc., etc. It's only the land of Israel. So if it's not if you're a Jew and you are a farmer, you have to do this. It's if you are a Jew and you're a farmer who is found in the land of Israel. And so we're trying to understand why. What's the connection between these two things? Why specifically only while you're in the land of Israel? Okay. So now, as is uh, as we've gotten used to by this point, the Alter Rebbe is going to go to speak about something else. Okay. <laughs> we're going to have to understand in order to answer all of these questions, why are the mitzvahs so um, so dependent on the physical world around us. Mm -hmm. Why is that? What's going on? What's the impact? What's going on when we do a mitzvah? And why is it that specifically that they are so physical? Okay? We haven't focused so much on mitzvahs this year, by the way. We've spoken about Torah um, quite a bit and what's going on when we learn Torah and the impact that that has on the connection and relationship it gives us with Hashem. But what's going on when we do mitzvahs? That's what we're going to discuss now, okay? So we're going to put the questions aside 
and we're going to start to discuss the idea of mitzvahs. And before we can do that, we're going to discuss a little bit about the world of Tohu, which we have touched upon. The idea of the world of Tohu and Shverat HaKelem, the breaking of the vessels. <coughs> and um, I don't know, have we gone into like detail this year about that? I feel like I did. I did discuss it. We touched, we did a good, like, um, we went a little more in depth on the Tsimsum, but not necessarily on like Tohu. Yeah. Okay. So we'll discuss it now because now it's fully coming up and discussed in this mime. It's not like a side note kind of thing. So he makes it. Now it's written. We're on the bottom, second, second last paragraph on page five. It says in Pashas Re'e that it's not on bread alone that a man lives, but rather he lives on that which comes out of the mouth of Hashem. It's interesting because this is very much what the Tanya is discussing, right? We're always finding connections with the Tanya of the day. We started to learn Shai Munah, which is the second book of Lukotei Amarim, which discusses very much the idea, that forever Hashem's words stand in the heavens and that Hashem created the world through the ten utterances. And so it says here clearly in the Torah that it's not on bread alone that man lives, but he also lives on the words that come out of the mouth of Hashem. So... On a basic level, what's this, what's, what's this verse telling us? It's telling us that we don't only exist because of the bread we eat, but we exist because Hashem's bringing us into existence. But on a deeper level, we're going to understand from this mimer that there's something within the bread that keeps us alive, not just the physical bread itself. That's what we're going to see. So we're going to ask a question on this. This is a question that comes up again and again in Chassidus. But Sarach Lahavin, we need to understand Hayitron Shebalechem. What advantage does bread have over us that we are dependent upon bread for our sustenance? And this question can be expanded to everything that we're dependent on too. Have you guys heard of the ideas of domim, tzomer, chai, medaber? Yeah. Yeah. That the, there are four categories of living things. That's also Tanya. Yes, it's Tanya. So domim means inanimate objects. Oh, 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 yes. Tzomer means... Plant, plant, and vegetation. Chai refers to all of the animal kingdom. And medaber, which means to speak, refers to people, people who speak. So there are four kind of categories of creation that fall into, fall into inanimate objects, vegetation, animals, and people. And it's very interesting because as you go down the chain, these things become more and more independent and not dependent on others. So man is dependent on all three of the elements below. We need animals to survive, we eat animals to live, and we also use animals to help us to get the food that we need. We survive off of the vegetation that grows in the ground, and we are, you know, we are dependent on the water and the air, which is which falls into the category of domen, right? So, in order for us to live, we are um, dependent upon all of the elements that are below us, right? And then we see with animals as well. Animals are dependent on vegetation and on domen and on on water and air, etc., etc., to live, right? on rocks for shelter to protect themselves. And we see that um, vegetation is dependent on, upon that which is below it, water, um, air, sunlight, etc. And then domem is basically pretty much self-sufficient, right? It doesn't need anything else. It doesn't need people or animals or vegetation in order to survive. Um, so, sorry, just so I get the order right. It's domem... Tzomeach. Tzomeach. Chai and then madaber. So the famous question in Hasidus is... We're the most sophisticated of all of these creations, right? We're the most sophisticated. We're the most godly. 
why are we dependent upon all of these things that are so much lower than us in order to survive? Like, you could be the most sophisticated person in the world, but if you don't eat, then all of your talent, right, is gone. You're, a person's not going to survive. We did ask a similar question all the way at the beginning of the year in Anil Dodi about the, we were discussing the idea of the significance of the farmers in the field versus the people who live in the city. You could be very, very intellectual and be in the city and be a philosopher or be an engineer, but if the people in the, in the fields are not providing you food, then all of that talent is completely gone. You're dependent on that, which is lower. And so we see the same thing <clears throat> within our own life. And here we're speaking specifically about bread from this verse. It's not only on bread that a person lives, but also on that which comes out of the mouth of Hashem. So, Adam gam ken nivra. Okay, so the question is, the question is why are we dependent upon bread? What's the advantage that bread has over us? Bread was created by the word of Hashem, by the mouth of Hashem, as it says in Parshas Re'eh. But so was man. We were also, and we were actually created by the breath of Hashem, right? Hashem blew the soul into us. So what advantage does bread have over us that we're dependent upon bread for our survival? But bread is not dependent on us for its survival, right? As it's written, Let us make man. So why does man need to receive his life and his sustenance specifically from that, which is so much lower and less sophisticated than him from bread. Okay, you get, you get the question, right? It's a pretty, pretty straightforward question. So the idea is, the word of Hashem, this is an acronym, stands for inanimate objects, vegetation, and animals. The word of Hashem that is enlivening them at every moment, is the idea of the 288 sparks of tohu that fell in the process of the shattering of the vessels. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit and we'll end off with that for today. We can continue. We'll start probably today. We have five more, no, we have 10 more minutes. Uh, we'll continue. We'll continue tomorrow. Um, let's first read inside the, the, the explanation given and then, and then we'll elaborate. Okay, what does it mean that this, the godly spark that enlivens Domim, Tzomeach, and Chai come from the world of Tohu that fell in the process of breaking of the vessels? What, what does that mean? Okay, so the world of Tohu, page six, is a spiritual level of divine light. And on this level, there are ten Sfirot, ten ways that Hashem expresses himself. And these spherots are each expressed in an unlimited capacity. So the term kalim refers to the specific function and definition of each sephira, like the nature of kindness, which is to be kind and giving. So in the world of Tohu, there were 10 sephirot, which had the same names and attributes as the sephirot as we know them in our world. The difference was, however, that each so kalim, what's the idea of kalim, the vessels, that the light that's characterized by chesed or the light that's characterized by gvura was put into a vessel to give it its, its character. So usually Hashem's light is one and simple and plain, as we've discussed before. It's one unifying light. So the moment this light separates itself into different categories, like different natures of kindness and severity, that's, called a, that's because of a vessel. There's a vessel that's giving it a certain definition and limitation that expresses that light in a certain way. 
But what was interesting about these lights, about these sephirot, was that each one was completely infinite and separate one from the other, which we might have we might have discussed before, right? We discussed at length the idea of that during Sphirata Omer, right? We count each sephira as it's included within another sephira. Because in the in the world of rectification, in our world, Hashem made the sephiras in a way that they actually work and are connected one with the other. Um, but in the world of Tohu, each sephira shone completely independently of any other sephira. Each one was unlimited and separate one from the other. So, so now, for example, when chesed was expressed without limits, this left no room for gavura. When gavura was also expressed without limit, this left no room for chesed. So because each sphere was expressed infinitely, when it came to produce something tangible and concrete, the ten spheres could not work together to actually bring about a world. Therefore, the result came out shattered as the result of the multiple forces operating in completely different modes. So the chaotic nature of things in our physical world is a reflection of the shattering of the kalim of the spherot of Torah. So it's explained in Kabbalah that every sephira had an infinite amount of light shining into an infinite vessel. So the vessel gave the light its character of either chesra, gavotiferet, etc. But what happened was that the light was too powerful for this definition and it shattered the vessel. And the vessel that shattered had remnants of little sparks attached to it, and it fell all the way down into this world. Okay, so it says here, even though things in this world are chaotic and shattered, they possess an element of infinity due to the infinite light of Hashem that was originally revealed in the spirit of Toh. So that infinity that existed in Toh fell down into this world. But we know the rule that I've said again and again, the higher something is sourced, the lower it falls. So because the... Sephirot and the lights that existed and the revelations of Hashem that existed in the world of Torah were so powerful, so spiritual and so infinite. When they fell down into this world, they fell into the lowest of the lowest of the lowest things, into the physicality. But within that physicality, there are remnants of those lights, little pieces of light that stuck to the vessels that fell down here that exist and enliven all the physicality around us. So the element of divine infinity pres present in creations is referred to as the 288 sparks that fell into our world from Tohu. So that's the idea of, um, what's the word now? Oh my gosh. Well, Tikkun Olam, first of all. You heard this idea of Tikkun Olam? It's the idea that the chaos that fell into our world needs to be rectified in the world of Tikkun, which is our world. We need to rectify that. We need to extract those sparks and elevate them to their original source. Yeah. And when Zulek Mitzrayim, Huge majority of these sparks were collected. That's right. Two hundred and eight. Are you serious? Two hundred and eight. How many years were the Jewish people in Egypt for? Four hundred. No. They were supposed to be for about four hundred, but in the end, it was bumped down to two hundred and. I think that two hundred and eight, from what I remember. Two hundred and four, two hundred and eight were elevated. They, so that's why Egypt was the most depraved of all the lands, mm. because these high spiritual energies fell so low into that land. The Jewish people had to really suffer to be able to extract that. They left with a rechush gadol. And then the remaining sparks were scattered around the world. The Rebbe famously said that all of the sparks have been elevated. All of the tikkunim have been done and we're ready for Mashiach. We just need to demand Mashiach now. But shatters and sparks... 210. 210. I don't know why I... Thank you. I don't know why I had the idea of 210. 210 for every year that the Jewish people were in the land of Egypt. They, they took out 210 sparks. So the remaining 78 
right? <laughs> my nap, my brain. The remaining 78 sparks were scattered all around, um, all around the world. And they fell here from the world of Tohu. So the idea is that based on the rule that the higher something is sourced in spirituality, the lower it falls down here, within the most physical and the lowliest and the seemingly least spiritual of all existence down here, there exists within it sparks of Tohu that originate from the highest of the highest places, even higher than the source of the godly soul. Extremely high up. And so when we consume and eat or elevate these physical limited things, we are extracting these sparks from Tohu and ourselves, our soul, our godly soul is actually rising up, bless you, rising up to that level, getting an aliyah, getting an elevation. So that's why it says, Adam, person, a person is originated, right? Adam, our godly soul, as we've discussed, is sourced in the world of Atzilut. We come from the world of Tikkun, from the world of rectification. So our soul is godly and it's not chaotic as a result of all, all the chaos from Tohu, but it is limited spiritually. And so when we eat or when we involve ourselves, as we're going to see here, in the physicality around us, we are extracting those sparks that fell from Tohu that are actually sourced in a higher place than even our godly soul. And as a result of that, our godly soul gets an elevation. But how does that work for us now if, like you said, you just said the if said, sparks, like, it's a good yeah. question. It's a good question. I don't know 100% the answer because we still have work to do, obviously. Yeah. We still have work to do and they are still, we're still elevating the physicality around us. Um, I, don't, I don't know the full answer. It's not to say that now we can just sit back, but I do think that it's also just a perspective as well, mm -hmm. that the world is ready. The world is ready, and so we need to start already to live with a Mashiach mindset. We need to already start to see, to, to, to bring about our own personal redemption within ourselves and to demand Mashiach, not say, oh, you know, maybe we're not ready. No, 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 like to actually demand from Hashem that he bring Mashiach. Um, and... And to obviously continue to, so that part, I don't know exactly. Because mm -hmm. um, the Rebbe, we know, did not tell anybody to sit back, <laughs> ever. <laughs> so, so it's not the idea that now we could sit back and relax because everything's been done. But it does signify some sort of next step. Mm -hmm. Next step in this process of exile, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So the word tikkun means to fix or establish. The world of Atsilut is where the chaotic aspect of Tsohu was created, was corrected, sorry. So all the sparks are from Atsilut? All of the sparks are from Tohu. Tohu okay. And then after Tohu fell and broke and yeah. fell down, Atsilut was created. Okay. Atsilut is a rectification of the world of Tohu. So just as in the, in the world of Tohu there were ten Sefirot, Chesed, Gevorah, Tiferet, Netzachot, Choch, Mubin, Adaz, Chesed, etc., etc., the world of Atzilot has the same thing, but in a rectified way. The lights and the vessels, there's less light and stronger vessels, right? And each Sefirah works with all of the other Sefirot together. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's the world of Atzilot is a rectification of the world of Tohu and all of the worlds that come from Atzilot as well. So this comes from the following idea. In Atzilot, which is the beginning of the world of Tikkun, the light of Hashem became integrated into the Sefirot in such a limited manner that all the Sefirot were able to work together. Why in Tohu were the Sefirot not able to work together? Because each one was so powerful and took up so much space that it didn't leave any room for any other, for any other Sefirot to exist. So what was the solution to that? That each Sefirot is a lot li more limited now in the world of Atzilut, 
the light is less powerful, the vessels are, are more powerful and more contained of the light, which enables and allows the sephirot to make room for each other and work together. So for example, chesed is expressed in a limited manner to give room for gavura. By chesed and gavura giving room for each other, they are able to actually work together because as we've discussed before, pure chesed is terrible, pure gavura is terrible. When each when each sephira exists on its own, independent of anything else, it goes all the way to extreme. And that's why it actually says that Esav, for example, is sourced in the world of Tikkun. Esav was the extreme of Gavura, right? So these ideas of extremism, it's sourced in this world of Tohu, where there's no space for anything else. And when that happens, it's chaos and it doesn't work. So this advantage of the spirit merging together is expressed in the order and continuity of whatever is produced from Tikkun. However, it lacks that unlimited aspect that Tohu possesses. So there's the advantage of Tikkun, which is that the world can actually work in an orderly manner and exist. There's the disadvantage of Tikkun that we don't have these infinite sparks that existed, these infinite lights that existed in Tohu. This is why the goal is to bring the unlimited aspect of Tohu and incorporate it into the orderly system of Tikkun. Tikkun Olam, basically, okay, and that's how we bring Mashiach, and I know Tikkun Olam has been hijacked as a, as a slogan word for a lot of things, but this is actually what Tikkun Olam means, and it's a lot harder than, um, than, other, than other ways it's um, used. A Jewish person's divine soul is from the world of Tikkun. A Jew possesses the capability to bring order and continuity into the chaos of our world. By doing so, he receives from the unlimited spiritual source of the physical things he corrects. It's very interesting, I'll finish off with this, that the spiritual worlds are very, very orderly. The word kadosh can also mean order, actually. It means separate, but it also means order. The moment something is kadusha, it works in a very orderly way. Um, the spiritual worlds are very organized, but then you come to our world and everything is chaos, and we have discussed this before in the Mimer of Shiramalais, and it's because the, there is a representation of the world of Tohu in our world, and our job is to be able to make order out of this chaos, just as Hashem made order out of the case of Tohu by creating Silot, and to be able to elevate these sparks. We'll continue with this idea tomorrow, and we're going to start to um, connect this idea with the mitzvot, okay, and the relevance of the physical mitzvahs. So I'll see you all tomorrow. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Feel better. Thank you. <laughs> now it's like.